0: A leading GP is quitting an overnight care scheme, saying staff being abused was the final straw for the stretched service. Experienced rural GP Dr Tim Malloy was one of the architects of an after-hours programme where rural clinics provide on-call care. But two days ago he told patients at his coast-to-coast health care in Wellsford it would no longer offer the overnight service after a woman GP was physically intimidated during a late-night clinic visit. Dr Malloy says this, vehicle break-ins as well, on top of other pressures such as an ageing workforce and chronic underfunding across the sector, uh, led to the decision. Dr Paula Matheson owns Rata Family Health in Whangarei, has a six-figure debt and says an overhaul of GP funding is needed. Her clinic, which was formerly owned by the now Health Minister, Dr Shane Reti, has a high number of complex patients who typically have higher costs, Another GP based in Hamilton took the step last week of writing a letter to patients detailing the service's financial shortfall under current funding after patients complained about fee increases. Government capitation funding, where GPs are paid per patient, is failing to cover clinics' costs. GPs around the motu are increasing fees or charging for previously free services. Dr Tim Malloy is with us first. Kia ora. Mūrena
1: Catherine.
0: What happened recently that led you to cancel this overnight care service?
1: Um, Essentially, we've been um, aware of major pressures on our workforce. Uh, As the workforce ages, we have fewer and fewer younger doctors who are willing and able to physically do the work, which is um, uh, stressful and takes you away from your family to cover the work at night time. And as as the workforce has aged, we have fewer doctors who are prepared to do that. And that meant that we're under considerable amount of pressure anyway. The service is not a cost-effective service at night time. It is essentially a uh, a, a facility that we provide because we we do realise that healthcare is a 24-hour issue, but at the end of the day, we still have to be able to provide that service in a financially sustainable manner. And in the context of our funding model, um, this has simply meant that we're not able to do that. Then recently we've had a sequence of events in our particular uh, group practice in which at first we just had our cars broken into and then we had our emergency car broken into, our equipment strewn about, and finally we've had a um, uh, an event in which one of our doctors was essentially uh, threatened and um, abused. And that was the last straw because that became one less doctor willing and able to work in the on-call roster at night time. And as a consequence, we've had to make the very difficult decision. And for me, that's after 37 years of providing on-call night services uh, that we are now in the position where we simply can't sustain it.
0: What happens now? What does this mean for people in your area who need after-hours or urgent care? How far to an ED and after-hours or a hospital?
1: So we are the last of the um, general practice primary care services in the rural um, interland between Auckland and Whangarei to continue to provide this service, and it means that there will now be none in which you will be able to see a doctor face to face at night time. What it does mean, however, that we will continue to provide our triage services. And therefore, when you ring the clinic, um, that will be transferred to a, a, a virtual uh, service who will be able to advise you as to what you should do. Now, that would may be that they will give you health advice around self-care. It may be to present to the practice in the morning It may be to, for example, um, attend an ED uh, uh, that night or it might even be to ring 111 and call an ambulance depending on the severity of the problem. But those options um, still remain. Uh, For us, unfortunately, that's about a minimum of an hour away uh, for most of the region um, in the middle of the north here.
0: Let's talk about the multiple stresses and the funding stresses. It's been some years since we last talked about this, Tim, but what we are seeing now is GP practices up and down the country, including in areas of uh, relatively less deprivation, yep. going into debt or base, raising fees, charging for things they never used to charge for, but carrying debt. In one instance, I'll cite in a moment, a personal mortgage was taken out. Yep. This is from doctors, uh, once perceived to be, you know, a relatively, a relatively well-remunerated profession. Yep. Let, let's talk about this in the instance of primary care. The SAPER report was prepared for the previous Labour government. I think it became public late last year. And the former health minister had shown interest in advancing its recommendations or acting on some of what it was exposing. The current health minister has indicated the same. Let's talk about some of the gaps indicated in that report and or by GPs New Zealand who've done their own analyses. What are we talking about with respect to shortfalls?
1: Uh, listen, in terms of the whole country, we are talking hundreds of millions of dollars in reality. So we are talking a a major ticket item in the uh, bottom line of the of the country's systems.
0: Well, let's pause. $137 million, Sapir says, just to maintain current levels of service. That's That's collectively, But individually, for example. Uh, The Sapir report says GPs are losing $29 per patient because of underfunding uh, on other matters. If it were to address the equity issues, in other words, clinics dealing with higher-need patients the shortfall is more like $614 But just bringing it back to the local, you you are seriously seeing and hearing doctors, doctors taking on debt in order to stay open?
1: Just to pay their staff. In other words, we're having to make choices between personal indebtedness as a business owner and paying the wages for the staff. Those are the kind of decisions that people are making. So what what bothers me the most is that's a significant outcome in its own right. But the alternative is that you increase fees where you are able to do so. And given that many people are restricted in their ability to do so by the government contract, we are compromised in every sense of the word. The problem, of course, is that if you increase fees, you you're doing so in knowing full well that you're going to make the equity issues worse. And that means that we have a sense of guilt uh, about that option and we are more likely to try and cover the costs ourselves rather than impose that upon our patients because none of us want to be able to deliver healthcare inequitably. Unfortunately, the way the funding model is occurring is that's what's driving us to do precisely that.
0: A 20-year-old model, two main funding streams to general practice as it is today. The capitation funding is paid according to the number of enrolled patients based on age and gender, but with no other equity considerations or complications attached, correct? Correct. And then there are the fees which each practice charges, which are decided by each practice but are capped by the government. Uh, Correct. This leads us to the... $29 $29 per patient lost because of underfunding. I recall a figure, I, I cannot cite where from, that if you see a patient more than three times a year, you're losing money on them. Is that correct?
1: Um, possibly up to four. Four um, times. And, in fact, we, we know that the utilisation data is, tells us that, in fact, it's significantly greater than that now as compared to 20 years ago when it was first introduced.
0: What has changed in the complexity of patients presenting an ageing population, uh, comorbidities coming with more than one uh, problem at a time? Could you explain why that funding has become so inadequate? Is it an inflation issue or is it the model itself?
1: It's a um, demand-driven problem in which... As the population ages, the proportion of patients with chronic disease who need multiple interventions simply increases. And as a consequence, um, uh, we need to see them considerably more often and we need to spend longer with them.
0: That capitation funding presumes a visit of how long?
1: Uh It it isn't stipulated but the the standard practice has been uh, 15 minutes Um, and of course a number of people require considerably more than that Uh, but the reality is that we are therefore having to decide between the needs of the patients and the time we can offer them and the sustainability of our practice financially.
0: The 15 minutes is for a face-to-face visit. Someone relatively young and healthy who's just in for a check on something or to get a prescription, that's another matter. No one goes in for those anymore, really. But anyway, um, goes in um, for a prescription and that's what it's based on. What else, though, might evolve in doctor time from a more complex visit? What do you have to do Um, by means of paperwork or follow-up with more complex patients?
1: Oh, listen, uh, with the complexity of patients, we are doing considerably more referrals. We're doing considerably more investigations. We're having to follow up on results. We're having to follow up on the communication between ourselves and the secondary services. So the amount of work that's generated by the complexity of patients increasing as they age significantly increases way beyond the consultation time period. And most of that work is is simply unremunerated. And that's uh, a huge burden on the uh, on the cost of our
0: service. So does the 15-minute visit that the capitation fee envisages, is there no other direct payment for the follow-up work?
1: No, none at all.
0: Now, let me clarify what I said earlier. Of course, you go in for your prescription, but because we've shifted so much to online, a prescription might go straight to a chemist, for example. Uh, There's more telehealth, for example. You're not necessarily going into the doctor and paying the fee. And is this why Um, some new charges are appearing?
1: I think you've got to be careful about making those kind of assumptions because what you're actually assuming is that everybody has the same level of health literacy. Where people have problems understanding health systems, a face-to-face consultation is still the norm, and that's irrespective of age and more to do with um, deprivation and um, education. And in that sense, in the more deprived communities, um, they are more dependent on face-to-face interactions. And there was also a cultural um, issue for many. They would prefer to have their communication with a person than electronically. So where we are dealing with people who are literate, clearly those alternatives are an option, but they're not an option for everybody.
0: Thank you. I also wanted to check whether, in practices where those alternatives are being undertaken, has it had implications for revenue flow and does it explain some new charges that people might be surprised by?
1: I think that it, Does have some implications for revenue flow, and there are charges that might be somewhat unexpected. We're dealing currently, and we have conversations inside of our practice around where we see a patient, uh, where we interact with a patient virtually, and then we have to follow that up with a face to face because we cannot solve the problem. How do we charge for that time? And do we charge twice, or do we just simply uh, suck up the cost of doing that? Um, and inevitably, that can be sort of ten to twenty percent of virtual consultations may end up in that sequence of events now that 's a huge burden of cost onto the practice.
0: stay with us please dr malloy let 's bring in Dr. Paula Matheson, whom I mentioned earlier, yeah, six figures in the red um, yeah. and Interesting your relationship with the current Health Minister. It's one of the things about the current health minister that he retains a practising certificate. I think he's locumed with you mm-hmm. to enable that, has he? Yeah, and and there's yes, a, a is a former colleague or a um obviously he's got another job going on now, Paula.
2: Yes, he does. And I appreciate he's very busy and I appreciate that he is constrained by Cabinet and restrained in what he can say, but I would really encourage him to put pressure on cabinet
0: and fix things quickly please. Would you be prepared to share a little of your clinic situation uh, and why you as our other GPs actually taking on personal debt to keep going could you just give us some indication perhaps of the nature of that? So
2: for me I'm a fifth generation A girl so these are my people this is my whenua this is my place I care for my patients, I care for my community, I've had patients for 20 years, I've been on hard journeys with them and with their whānau, they matter to me, I care, I love my job, my staff are amazing, my patients are amazing, I love my job and I would so dearly love to stay where I am and that's why I've taken the risk and money—you know put my health on the line to keep the practice open. But it's coming to a point where I can't, might, may not be able to do that for very much longer.
0: Can you explain what that shortfall means? And let me just quote the Sapir report as well. Because if it is in an area of lower uh, socioeconomic income, that gap is even larger. Let me just find the numbers from the mm-hmm. report here. It was $137 million Overall, yep. just to maintain yep. the current. To address actual inequities was over $600 million. And yep. there's a much... Um, and the underfunding, I think it was something like, for, for for practices in more deprived areas, it's a more than 200% funding increase that was required. Does yeah, that and... does that ring a bell?
2: Oh, yeah. The rumours from the Ministry of Health, though, uh, remembering that that superior is two years old, and that data was based on two to three-year-old data things have moved on and rumors have it that places like Northland it's 300 percent now now let's be clear a 300
0: percent increase in the amount practices should be receiving in funding
2: yeah to keep us um equal with our hospital you know parity and
0: equality
2: with our hospital colleagues Paying us for the
0: work that we do, and nurses, our and, and, and nurses, and others, and, um, of course, who make up the primary practice. Okay.
2: Yeah, yeah. Need to be able to pay everybody, and I need to pay the power bill too
0: because it gets close sometimes. I want to quote what another colleague said, Paula. Um, this is a colleague in Hamilton. In a GP's letter mm. to her patients last week, they were upset Marilyn, about funding yes. charges. Yeah, this is Marilyn from Flagstaff. She says our business is running at a loss, so to remain solvent we must do two things, sadly increase fees and to cut services further. GPs short, two DP short, cannot afford to immediately hire a new doctor, waiting time nearly three weeks. Revenue no longer covers the cost of the practice's mortgage, so Marilyn and her husband have personally taken over that burden. She and her colleague who co-own the business have occasionally had to defer wages until their monthly funding payment arrives, She says, and I quote, the practice is going into overdraft every month. I don't know any practice that isn't. And we note that her practice is in an area regarded as comparatively wealthy compared to some. Paula, is that the story over and over again?
2: Over and over again. Um, She's in a reasonably wealthy area, and she's getting the same baseline funding as everybody else. And... It her, she's charging $59 a visit. Silverdale is charging $70 a visit. In Whangarei, the same access-funded clinics are charging $42. i have got a, um, a practice that has more high-needs patients, more than double the average for New, for New Zealand, and I'm on a, um, at 42%. I'm in a VLCA contract, so I get a top-up. That means that for a standard consultation, Um, It's $19.50. The last time I was allowed to increase that was about 2017, 2018. I can't quite recall. And I was allowed to increase my fees by 50 cents. Haven't been allowed to increase my fees since then.
0: Because they are capped?
2: Because they're capped. So I'm having to become a little bit more creative and and having to charge for things that patients haven't previously um, paid for. And they're not happy about it.
0: Paula, we had the Health Minister on for a good sit-down just a couple of weeks ago. He referenced the Sapir report. He spoke constructively about its findings. What he's not able to do, and he was last interviewed on Checkpoint last night, is to commit for a timeline for more GPs at this stage. Got to get it through cabinets, got to get it through a budget process. This is a budget process that's looking to trim funds everywhere.
2: Yep.
0: How much longer can people like you carry on? Um,
2: Months? couple of months 3 months 4 months um the talk amongst my colleagues is what's your plan be when it you can't do it anymore it, the the lid has sunk and we're getting starved of oxygen um yeah nose is just above the water and if we go any further any further down we'll be drowning so yeah a lot of my colleagues talking about what is your plan B.
0: Dr. Retty last night said he's agreed for a while that general practice is broken, and supports that his focus will be on improving recruitment, retention, and remuneration of doctors. Mm-hmm. I'll um, cite Dr. Retty citing a General Practice New Zealand report that for every $1 invested in primary care, downstream savings to the health system are up to $13. Visits each year, 20 million visits to GPs, 2.5 million to urgent care providers, 1 million to hospital emergency departments. I thank you both again for your time. We will keep in touch. Thank you, Dr Paula Matheson. Thank you, Dr Tim Malloy.